After a couple of weeks away, it's, it's good to be back, and it's good to be back with you uh, again in worship. Thank you, um, a lot of you who were praying along with us um, as our family traveled to Liberia and back and, um, and got to adopt a son after a, a, a year-long process of seeking God's will and following it through that this time, and um, thank you as a community for that. It's fun to know you can come back and you can worship on one side of the world, you can worship on the other, and the same Holy Spirit is claiming every inch and every part of, of his entire world back. I am making all things new. That's the voice that speaks in the book of Revelation that we've been listening to. And we'll go again there uh, this morning as we go back into our series, looking at the letter to the church in the city of Pergamum. John prayed a minute ago that the word would fall on fertile soil, that it would bear fruit, it would bear fruit that would last. I remember hearing a story by Tony Campolo. We talked about going on a trip with a bunch of students while he was teaching at Eastern College. And they went on a trip to Haiti, much like the Amor program trips that you see at Dort College. And he said one day they were at a little village in northern Haiti and they were standing in line and watching this long line of people seeking um, to get medical attention. And they were so underserved in the medical abilities that were, that were around them in that country. And he said he saw these children who you knew at the end of the day weren't going to get in to see the one doctor and the one nurse that were there. And he said he was struck because one of the students was so moved. His name was Charlie. And he said, Doc, I promise you right now in this moment, I am going to go become a doctor. I am going to come back here and I will help these people. Tony Campolo said he ran into that same student, Charlie, many years later in downtown New York City. Sure enough, the young man had gone on to be a doctor, but he wasn't helping poor people. He wasn't giving his gifts to the very thing that he had promised before Campolo and God that he would do. Rather, he was a cosmetic surgeon doing breast augmentation for the wealthiest women of New York City who sought desperately to chase after a mirage and idol of beauty that they would never find. He said he challenged him in that moment and maybe even too harshly. But he said it was so hard to think that that was the vision that he had and then this is the place where he ended up. And that was the promise that he had made and the very vow that he had now betrayed. And he wondered where along the line do those things happen? I have no doubt that God has spoken to you in some deep moment of your life when you were at a conference or a retreat or in a moment of worship or in private devotion or on a mission trip and you laid something down before God. And then a month or two later when we come back down from the mountaintop or in the valley, it seems like a daydream that we can hardly remember that promise that we made. And I've come to realize as I see different people's stories and even my own that we don't sell out our souls in this world usually in one momentary bad decision. Most of us sell our souls out one dollar at a time. I don't know what happened in the middle of Charlie's story. But I kept thinking about all of you because I know that you've made promises like this. I know that you want to strive after not only what you will do when you graduate from this place, but who you will become. And all of these little decisions and all these little movements now are a dialing into the trajectory of where your life is aiming. And these things matter. As we're going to see again in the story of this letter to the church in Pergamum, that the greatest threat to their faith wasn't something that came from without, 
It was, in fact, the persecution around them was something that they were able to stand fast within. But rather, it's the slow and it's the nuanced and it's the insidious stuff that breaks through and slowly starts to steal our promises before God. Will we sell our souls a dollar at a time to the vision of this world and not one of the kingdom of heaven? Pergamum was the third church to receive a letter that John's writing. And you'll remember these seven churches represent the seven churches of all time and all places. These are ones that John would have seen himself. And there's a particular literary arrangement to them as we move sort of in what's called a chiasm to the middle. We'll talk about Thyatira next week. A chiasm is essentially a literary sandwich. It draws parallels between the first and the seventh, the second and the sixth. The third and the fifth kind of all pointing to the middle and the fourth. And we hit this, the crux of the message of the seven letters actually next week when we talk about Thyatira. And you can see these commonalities between one and seven. Ephesus and Laodicea, they get the strongest warnings. Smyrna and Philadelphia, you see themes about faithfulness and testing. Pergamum and Sardis, we see that some are staying and some are straying. And there's sort of this division taking place. You'll notice that theme when we get into the letter here in a minute. You'll also see that throughout this, you know, a couple weeks ago I showed you this chart that I had made, and there's these seven commonalities in all seven letters to the angel of the church in, and then these are the words of, as Jesus reveals himself, I know, the I know statements of what he knows about them, right? I'm the one who walks among the seven lampstands. I know my churches. It's his way of saying, I know you intimately. I know all the little details. There's nothing in your life that is hidden from me. And then, but I have this against you, right? Because there's something he wants to call us to, and it's always more than where we're at. A command or an ultimatum, and then a promise. The gospel always ends with a promise. It's always an invitation to life abundant, to eternal life, to a richer awareness of the presence of God in our lives, to a fuller outpouring of his spirit. Whoever has ears, let him hear the refrain that closes all of them. So to the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious... I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's a uniqueness, of course, in all of these letters as he talks about the distinguishing features of each of these cities. And the words that Jesus chooses often have to do with specific historical features of that city. 
Pergamum gets the promise, right? That this is the power, the double-edged sword, right? That's the, that's the word that they, they get from the revelation of Jesus. Pergamum was the capital of their region. They actually had the power of the sword. For all of Asia, they're the one place where you would have to go if you were getting capital punishment under Roman law. But Jesus doesn't talk about the power of the sword that the city of Pergamum wields. He reveals himself and the sharp double-edged sword that he comes to bring. Pergamum was the chief seat of emperor worship for the entire region. So it had a massive temple there of dedication to Caesar. And you'll remember now that this is the very reason why John himself is on the island of Patmos. Because he would not give to Caesar what belonged to God and God alone. And that was the full allegiance of his heart. He wouldn't worship Caesar. And so he gets expelled. So this church lives in the center of emperor worship. They had a thousand foot high Acropolis at the center of the city. You could see the center of Pergamum from miles away. And on top of this were these temples. It was sort of a theology mall at the top of the Acropolis. Here's a picture of Pergamum. You can see the huge amphitheater on the hillside in the distance and all around the plains. Everybody would be able to see this center focal point towering above them. All the worship of all the gods and of Caesar that stood in the middle of their vision. It was the geographical center of their world. It was also the center of the Greek god Zeus, worship of him. Zeus, also known as the Savior in the ancient world. Atop of that Acropolis, these remains of the temple of Zeus still sit to this day in the city of Pergamum. And in Zeus's temple, there was an altar that burned 24 hours a day as sacrifice after sacrifice came. All of your senses, your sight of this Acropolis and seeing the smoke billowing as the sacrifices to Zeus keep going. The smell of constant meat being offered in sacrifice and being burned before him. All of this pulling your eyes, your attention, your senses towards the center of the Acropolis. Pergamum was also famous because it had the second largest library of the ancient world after the city of Alexandria. In fact, the word Pergamum actually comes from the word parchment. It was a center for learning and of new ideas. It's where universities and and, and new thoughts and the, the brightest minds would congregate to talk about intellectual engagement. There were bright people who came here. Finally, It was the center of Asclepius' worship. Asclepius was the god of healing. His temple, too, stood at the top of this hill. And therefore, it became actually the global center of study for healing and medicine. These are the remains of the temple of Asclepius that sit there to this day. And people would come from all over the world seeking healing, seeking freedom from whatever it is that they were sick from. And one of the things that you could do in the temple of Asclepius is you could sleep overnight on the floor in this temple. And all different snakes, because that was Asclepius' symbol, would slither around on the floor. And it was believed that if one of these snakes came over you at night or came into contact and touched you, that meant that the God himself was healing you. And so people hoped that one of these snakes would come to them and they would be healed of their affliction. It's actually why to this day, in med- you see in, within medical symbols, um, the, the pledge of Asclepius or the, the serpent depicted in symbols like this. It all dates back to Pergamum and the belief that you could find healing in this place. 
But of course, Jesus knows all of these things. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. And yet you remain true to my name. So of of the overt persecution, of the obvious visual domination in this city, of other gods that are worshipped, of Caesar who is lifted up and worshipped. Even amidst this, you did not renounce your faith. Not even when one of the people in the church, the guy named Antipas, was killed. And look at the honor that is given him. Remember in chapter 1, one of the ways Jesus reveals himself is he reveals himself as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Antipas gets given the same name that Jesus had, a faithful witness, even in the midst of persecution. He was put to death. And again, second time, he says this now, where Satan lives. Obviously a hard place to be a follower of Jesus in the ancient world. So they stood, to, they stood strong in the midst of this persecution and opposition, but nevertheless, I've got this against you, Jesus says, and two things in particular. There's some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Well, what on earth does that mean? But of course, you're all well-versed in the books of Numbers and Leviticus and stuff like that, so you know in Numbers 22 to 24, we encounter the story of Balaam, who the king Balak of Moab, while the Israelites are in the wilderness, comes to Balaam and buys from him these curses, that he would go and curse the Israelites. But Balaam, of course, can't do it. He tries and he tries, but he can't curse what God has blessed. And so at the end of the day, his plan for Balak to make him happy is says, well, if you could just get your Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men, then you will divide their people and their allegiance and you'll wreak havoc among them and they will not be a threat to you anymore. See, it's not the overt. They didn't come with their army. They said, send your women and entice them. It was sexual sin that became the undoing of the Israelites in the wilderness in the middle of all of this. It's it's the subtle ways that it kind of sneaks all in. And somehow that led to idolatry and to a selling out. N.T. Wright says it like this. The reason why sexual immorality is so often coupled with idolatry as it is here in this passage is because such behavior points to different gods The gods of blood and soil, race and power. You heard those lines recently in American culture? In our broader cultural discourses, blood and soil, race and power. It's a toxic mixture, and the Christian has no business getting involved with it, as Paul himself warned us in 1 Corinthians 10. There's a certain rationalization that came, place, came, that came to bear when it, came, when it happened with food sacrifice to idols. You see this come up all the time in the New Testament. You might be asking, what on earth is that all about? Well, all of this meat, of course, and these sacrifices are going before the different gods, and then they would bring them back, and you could sort of have this food, or your friends would invite you along because it was a social thing to go to. And it would be very easy for a Christian to be able to say, well, it's just a physical thing. It doesn't have meaning. These are gods of wood and stone. They're carved by human hands. They don't actually hold authority. So what difference would it make if I ate the meat that was sacrificed to them that dominates the marketplace? But symbols have the power that we give them. And this rationalization process is the same thing that affects us today as believers. It's just a little... I mean, it really can't be that bad. And most of the worst of the sins in your life and my life are the ones that came in through small little cracks and openings. 
We, just like the people of Pergamum, are, are pretty good at calling out the really overt, the satanic. I'm not really worried about you going to a Wiccan church this weekend. I'm not really worried about you bowing down before some carved idol. Like, those aren't the things that keep me up at night when I'm praying and thinking about this place. But it's the subtle and the small. It's the little rationalization conversations that the accuser that the evil one is so good at getting under our skin with and getting into our minds. The battlefield of the mind is what is articulated here. Jesus says, I come with a sharp double-edged sword, the one in close hand-to-hand combat. That's where I come to you. And I will fight. And I will fight for you and for your mind. So the commitment that Charlie once made on a mission trip isn't sold out for some promise of something that is so less than what God can deliver. Food sacrificed to idols, sexual temptation. It was the Israelites' undoing in the wilderness. It would have been all around the people in the first century. Fortunately, that's not a problem for college students today. But of course it is, and it is for all of us. It's one of Satan's favorite ways to undo God's people. And it's a little look here. It's a little thought down this rabbit trail. And we excuse it away. We blame it on our humanity. We blame it on somebody else. I was reading a little while back an article in New York Magazine by Naomi Wolf. She had one of the best lines talking about the insidiousness of pornography today. She said, the problem with porn isn't that it shows us too much sex. Rather, the problem with porn is that it doesn't show us enough sex. You see what she's saying? The problem with porn isn't that it shows us too much sex. The problem is it doesn't show us enough. It's a cheap, falsified version that cannot deliver what it promises. And we've got these Christian communities that still pretend like this is something that God himself didn't invent. Do you know that God would love for you? To be like a a fully actualized sexual being. That you are a sexual being before God because that's part of how he created you. And the fact that we don't talk about this and don't acknowledge it is one of the reasons it so easily becomes the undoing of God's people. We have to be able to reclaim this gift and to talk about it. Because all of our cultural offerings of what's supposedly pleasurable is a cheap, falsified distortion It's paid, beaten up, abused actors. It's photoshopped pictures. It's a lie. Sexual temptation is always a lie. The problem with Satan's lies is that they're often very convincing. And they fall in line with our own rationalization because they pull on desires that are naturally within us. God-given within us. It's the slight distortion that starts to get us off course. But those couple degrees moved away from a life focused on Christ are the ones that eventually lead us so far away from the target where we're all aiming. Now, when cities were built for thousands of years, the central place, just like it was in Pergamum, was a place of worship. For hundreds of years, the Christian communities would do this. And at the center of all the communities, geographically, 
was a place of worship with spires and crosses that pointed our eyesight heavenward. It told the stories even for those who couldn't read through stained glass and iconography of the gospel story and of the God who ruled over it all. It stood at the center. But at the center of all of our communities today are not the same things, even in supposedly Christian nations. The center of our attention and the center of our lives revolve around different things. Here's my home city of Vancouver. The churches in the middle of that central business district are so small compared to the towers of commerce. The testimonial towers of Babel that talk about the greatness of humanity and what it's done. And it lures us away and our idols and our gods are, are the way our lives are orchestrated, chase after different things. And the city is designed to celebrate its wealth and its beauty. All the while not giving testimony to the one who actually made it or gave us the abilities to do this. In the suburbs, it's our shopping malls that often stand at the center of our communities. The geographical center, right? Not the church. We put our malls in the middle. That's where we spend our money. And instead of covering ourselves with the name and the truths of Jesus, we cover ourselves with name brands, hoping that they'll say something about us to give us significance among our peers. Or for anybody else looking on, that maybe it'll say something a little bit more about us. It's hard for us to step outside of ourselves and question the very things that, ca- that make us have to stand in the world and not of the world and be on this knife's edge of loving our community and being invested in it, but not letting our soul get sold out to it. I don't think Charlie woke up one day and said, today's the day I sell my soul, I give up on my vision and my promise before God and the calling that I felt so deeply within me, and today's the day. No, it doesn't go like that. Because these lies are slow and they get us. But can you recall even now in your own mind and in your own heart the promises that you've made before God? Our allegiances get divided in different directions. And it's so hard for us to come back to Jesus' simple command of give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God's. You see, Caesar put his face on the coinage. And they put flags up and they put their emblem on the front of their shields and they believed in military might to achieve the Pax Romana and they believed in their commerce to bring about peace and change and transformation and happiness in people's lives. And they believed that they could do all this through political means and economic. There's been a huge cultural conversation in our country lately around this symbol of ours. And as I listen to the conversations from the political left and the political right, even within Christianity, you see words like stand, kneel, reverence, sacrifice, honor. These sound like the words of worship and of liturgy. You know that in the New Jerusalem, there will not be a flag of any one country that flies anymore, right? Right? But we get pulled into these conversations like they're the most important thing going on. See how easily that happens? And we believe we're even doing these things for good and right reasons so often. And they're conversations that we do need to engage, but they can't own us. They can't control us. They can't do that to us. But that's how it happens. The promise always comes. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. What on earth is he talking about? 
Well, he already referenced the Israelites in the wilderness When Balaam came and the Israelites fell for the seduction of the Moabite women, they were still being fed in the wilderness by manna. God is saying to the people in Pergamum, like he said to the Israelites in the wilderness, like he's saying to you now, don't reach out for the temptations that the world produces because I can still deliver everything that you need. I will sustain you. I will uphold you. It doesn't matter what the world looks like. It doesn't matter how enticing everything else is. I can feed you what you really need, and I will do it day by day as you learn to trust in me. Don't sell yourself out in a momentary decision. Don't sell yourself out in moments of indiscretion, and don't sell yourself out a dollar at a time. I will feed you, I will sustain you, and I will give you life. And I will give you a white stone. What a weird symbol. As far as I can tell from research, white stones are used for actually nine different purposes in the ancient Greco-Roman world. White stone was what a gladiator got when he had finished fighting his last battle in the arena, when he was allowed to retire out of the arena. The only way out without dying was to be given a white stone, and that was your ticket out of the gladiatorial games. A white stone was jewelry. A white stone was in a place like Pergamum where there were natural black stone all in the earth and buildings were made out of black stone. White was the marble name carved and put on top of it that made it actually be able to say what it was. It it, it told you what that building's identity was. Signage was all made out of white stones. But this one's my favorite. For all the big parties that they would have and that Christians would have been invited to, The way that you got an RSVP or an invitation to a decadent celebration in Pergamum is you were given a white stone with your name engraved on it. And when you showed up at the door, that's what you handed in. That was your ticket. Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't give in to this sexual immorality. Don't give in to this this sort of we need to tolerate everything kind of stuff. That's That's what Jesus is saying to the people, right? And you don't need what lies behind those doors because I have an invitation for you to a banquet the likes of nothing Pergamum can produce. I have a white stone with your name on it. I have an invitation and this is what I've already paid the price for you to get inside to be part of this with me. I have paid the price and it's yours. I just want to give it to you. I'll give you a new name and a new identity and you are mine. This beautiful imagery hidden in here as he speaks against the culture. Jesus is so political in these letters. He's so economic. He's so social. He's so relational. He understands everything about his people. And Jesus understands every pressure that you face. And he wants to deliver us from them. And give us life. And as the Holy Spirit tugs at your heart, prompting you to make more promises and hand over more of your life to him, These are the passages and the truths we need to come back to to be reminded. There were people threatened for centuries. But the promises of Jesus to deliver more than anything the world offers us in its lives will always be greater. And these promises are for the church in Pergamum and they are for you. And they are for me. The one who came to give us life and that we would have it to the full. Not in a paler version than the one the world gets outside. Real life. Abundant, eternal, it's yours. We pray with me. Father, we cling to your promises for all that you plan and promise to give us, for all that you've already done. Father, we get stressed out by the relationships around us, by our tasks, by our homework, by 
life, by family, by so many different things. And God, we just ask that you use these times and these words to remind us that you came before and you'll be here after. That we get one go-round on this rock circling your son. That our decisions would be honoring to you. Not because we got to give you something back to pay you back for what you've done. Because you just want to give us more life. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust your truth and not the lies that we are offered. Help us to know who you really are. And that you are good. And that you are for us. May we receive your offering. And find ourselves in you. Unwavering. Till you call us home. In the name of the one who paved the way, our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please stand and receive a parting blessing. Children of God, your Savior plans to feed you every day with everything you stand in need of. He has gone before and he has given you a new identity. You are his. You have been bought at a price. Go in life. Go in him. Amen.